let's turn to Job and at the end of um, Job chapter 38, a third of little series of three in the book of Job. If you have not heard the previous two weeks, you might want to catch up with those later in order for it all to, to come together and make sense. Um, and uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time now to look at your words. We pray that you, you'd help us to get into these extraordinary chapters in Job. Help us to see what you're saying to us so that as we marvel at who you are, we would trust in you more and more in the face of our circumstances, in the face of suffering in this world. May we be led to, to worship you and live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine in better times that you have an appointment to meet a friend for lunch in central London. And this, this person is a good friend, an old friend, one of your closest friends. And it's uh, 12 o'clock, Trafalgar Square, meet by the fourth plinth, you know, the one without the statue on it. And your friend is a stickler for timekeeping. Uh, there have been times when you've turned up late and you felt a bit awkward because your friend is never late for anything. But, you know, amazingly, the tubes are running well that day and you arrive a few minutes early, ready to meet your friend and impress them with your timekeeping. But 12 o'clock comes and there's no sign of your friend. Well, OK, give them a bit longer then. Quarter past and you're getting restless. And uh, you're, you're thinking, well, you know, my friend's never late for anything. And, and you don't get any text messages. And you're thinking, well, I know the tubes are fine, so that there, there can't be a problem there. And as time goes on and there's still no sign of your friend, thoughts begin to cross your mind. Did I get the wrong time or the wrong day? It's there in my diary. I remember the conversation. I'm sure this is right, but maybe I've made a mistake. Has something terrible happened that is preventing my friend from keeping their promise to be here on time? Have I unknowingly done something wrong? Have I offended them and they've just decided not to turn up? And then finally, at 12.45, three quarters of an hour late, a text message arrives, sorry, couldn't make it. And that's all it says. And you immediately try to ring them, but it goes straight to voicemail. Now, you know, text messages from your friends are usually much more friendly. This one feels un unfriendly, cold, short. You know, weren't we supposed to be having lunch together? And you think, does my friend not understand that I've been waiting for 45 minutes in Trafalgar Square? Maybe they're not so interested in being my friend anymore. And so the thoughts go on until finally you give up and you go home. Well, that situation is a little picture of what's been going on in the book of Job. There is this sense for Job that God has not shown up, that he's not acting in the way Job would expect him to act based on what he knows of him. So in the first two um, weeks of looking at this, little, this book, we've seen Job has lost all his children and his servants and his livestock, and he's been inflicted with a horrible skin disease. And last week we saw Job wrestling with God and also with his friends. 
who are trying and largely failing to help him understand what's going on. You know, you must have done something wrong, Job. That's why you're suffering. Repent. But Job says, no, I haven't done anything wrong. And the narrator agrees with him. And even God himself, we see, agrees with him. Job is innocent. And yet he is suffering. Doesn't make sense. And like with the friend who doesn't turn up at the prearranged time, Job is finding himself asking hard questions about God. Is God not the good, loving, wise God that I had come to know? Well, you know, what possible reason could there be for the suffering that I'm going through? It doesn't make sense. I want to know why. And I guess in different ways, we probably all know something of those why questions in the face of suffering. There have been plenty of opportunities to ask why questions over the last few weeks. Do you know this is the eighth Sunday that we're doing online? It's hard to believe, isn't it? Um, and of course, there will be many other times in our lives where we ask these why questions. Even the most upright believer, of which Job is an example, will cry out, why God is this happening? What possible reason could there be? And even Jesus himself, as he died on the cross, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in these final five chapters of Job, we heard the first one and the last one, we finally hear God's response to these questions. We've heard nothing from God since the scene in heaven with Satan in chapters one and two. And now, chapter 38, verse one, the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And we come to our first point of two this evening. We see first the God who is God. The God who is God. What does God say then? Perhaps not exactly what we would hope he might say. On the surface, there aren't really answers here, just lots and lots of questions. In fact, almost every verse for the next two chapters is a question that God asks back to Job. So he goes, who are you? And then uh, as, he, as he goes on, he, uh, he says, were you there when I created the earth? Can you control the weather? Can you make a snowflake? Do you hold the earth in your hands? Can you number every creature in the universe? Now, what do you make of that as a response? Is it satisfactory? The playwright George Bernard Shaw was not impressed with this response. He commented that really Job deserved a bit more from God than some bragging about making snowflakes and crocodiles. And others have said similar things. The implication is God really owes Job and he owes us an explanation after all he's been through. And the problem is we don't get that here. And what we get instead is God basically saying to us, I am God and you are not. You are answerable to me. I am not answerable to you. You are the creatures. I am the creator. I am God. Well, there's only comfort in this. We need to do a bit of digging to think about it. Look at chapter 38 and uh, verse 8. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. 
Now, you see, this isn't an attempt to give a scientific account of tides and storms. The point here is much deeper than that. You see, the sea is a symbol for chaos in the world. And the suffering, the seeming disorder we experience when suffering comes in whatever form, it stands for that. And the, the, the question in the face of that chaos is, is anyone in control here? Or is it all entirely chaotic and random? Does the universe have a steering wheel? And God is saying, there is a steering wheel and I'm in charge, even in the chaos. I say thus far, even to that chaotic ocean that you're terrified of, I say thus far and no further. And that's exactly what we saw in the first two chapters. Satan had to ask permission to cause Job's suffering and God permitted it and he set clear boundaries on what satan couldn't couldn't do didn't he he didn't he, he said you can go this far try this god is in control he is the god who is god and that message continues into chapters 40 and 41 and so we get these descriptions of the behemoth and the leviathan now we don't know exactly what those creatures are many people um I think they might be the hippo, uh, hippopotamus and the crocodile. Um, and if you've got the, uh, the, the New International Version, you can see in the footnotes um, at the bottom uh, of the page for the, uh, around chapter 40 and 41, possibly the hippopotamus or the elephant, possibly the crocodile. And uh, that's what prompted that um, statement from George Bernard Shaw and he's sort of saying about you know he just God's just giving statements about snowflakes and crocodiles doesn't really help Job deserves more this is where is why he said this because some people have said he's talking about a crocodile there's almost certainly something more than that going on here the whole of chapter 41 is describing this creature emphasizing how terrifying this creature is slightly more terrifying even than a crocodile and God's main question in chapter 41 if you look at verse 41 is uh, if you look at no, chapter 41 verse 1 if you look at that is can you tame this creature can you put him on a lead um, so uh, do you remember there was a book many years ago called um, the uh, something like the survival handbook and it had lots of um, well, it was worst case scenario survival handbook. That was it. And, and, and chapter one was how to um, tame a, uh, what to do if you're attacked by an alligator. And basically you kind of get on its back and you put your fingers in its eyes. That's what I remember from that book. The one thing I have, I have learned. Now, I'm not sure I'd ever want to be in that situation. But I think although crocodiles and alligators are terrifying, they're not in the realm of the utterly untamable and horrifying. There's something more going on in uh, chapter 41 than can you tame a crocodile? And actually elsewhere in the Bible, the Leviathan is very clearly a picture of evil. Perhaps it's using some of the, 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 the language of the stories and myths of the time about fearsome sea creatures. And the, the behemoth may in fact be a personification of death itself. But in particular, if the Leviathan is evil itself, look what God is saying. Um, verses one to five. 
Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as your slave for life? And then look at this, verse five. Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? In other words, imagine evil itself as the worst possible untamable creature. Imagine bringing this creature home on a lead to your little girls, if you can find some, for tea. Look, darlings, look what I've brought to show you today. I know it's got enormous teeth and it looks like it wants to eat you, but it's okay. You can keep it in the garden next to the rabbits and the guinea pig. So can you say, can you see what God is saying to Job? Your worst fears, your nightmares, the things you dread the most, the suffering you think you cannot possibly bear, evil itself, it's all on a lead. I, God, say thus far and no further. I set the boundaries. I'm in control. You are very much not in control. And that terrifies you. But I am in control. I am the God who is God. Now, is that the answer we were looking for? Probably not exactly, but this is the answer God says we need. When we look at the God who is speaking here as Christians who live after Jesus has died and risen from the dead, we can add a bit more to what God says here. The God who is God and who is in control is a God who has outloved evil and outlived death. Are death and evil and suffering utterly terrifying? Well, of of course they are. But are they under control? You bet they are. And so we're left with a choice. We can either run from this God in a rage that he won't answer all our questions and explain everything, or we can run to him and take refuge in him and rise from the dead one day in a world without evil and suffering and death. So that is the God who is God. And then finally, we turn to Job himself and his response to God in the final chapter that we that Chris read for us. So chapter 42, the battling and blessed believer, the battling and blessed believer. How how does Job respond to all of God's questions? Does he press harder for answers? Well, no, look at verse three of chapter 42. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And verse six, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What does he mean that he repents? Well, as we know, to repent means to do an about turn in your life what is he then turning from he's not he's not repenting of any sin that might have caused his suffering that's been very clear through the whole book we know that he's innocent and he doesn't seem to be repenting of the majority of what he said in lament and frustration through the book you see look look, look at verse seven god is telling job's friends what a hopeless job they've done as as we saw last week and and, uh, but, but verse seven You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And the same again in verse 8. 
but so what is job, what is job repenting of that's the question but there was there was one question that god asked of job in chapter 40 that points to where job might have been starting to go wrong so job chapter 40 verse 8 have a look at that god says to job would you discredit my justice would you condemn me to justify yourself so back in chapter Falver square it's like that feeling where you think either i've got something wrong you know i've got the wrong day or the wrong time or my friend has got something wrong and i'm pretty sure it's not me so it must be my friend whether they've forgotten or they just can't be bothered to come and Job, in his indignation, has been heading towards saying that if he's innocent, and he's completely convinced he is, then it must be God who's done this to him. It must be God's fault. He should get the blame. But think about Trafalgar Square again. With your friend in Trafalgar Square, there is a third possibility, which is that you haven't done anything wrong, and actually neither has your friend. And there's a reason that your friend is late and there's a reason that your friend is sending blunt text messages and in the end has cancelled the lunch meeting. There's a reason, but you just don't know what it is. And that's how it is with God. God is saying to Job, yes, you're innocent, but I am also just and right and fair. And I'm God, and you're not. And the reasons you long to know are, at least for the time being, going to stay hidden. Don't stray into blaming it on God, he's saying. That seems to be what Job is repenting of here. The thing that marks Job out in this, in this book is his perseverance, his complete refusal to give up, his desire ultimately not just for answers that fit his system, but for God himself. This is what he battles for. He is a believer who battles because he wants more of God. And in the end, what he finds is blessing. Does the ending puzzle you a little bit? After all these chapters of no answers, his struggle with pain, and it's all been so difficult, God suddenly blesses him with twice as much as he had before, verse 10 in in the the last chapter. Uh, More livestock, verse 12. And more children, verse 13, noted for their great beauty. But let's think about these blessings for a minute. They don't undo the suffering Job has been through, do they? You know, think of someone who, who maybe lived through the Holocaust in World War II, who survived the horrendous suffering of the concentration camps. And then maybe in later life, they settled in, I don't know, in Los Angeles, in relative comfort for the rest of their life. Well, you could never say that the second half of their life, however great it was, you could never say that that undid the suffering they'd been through or lessened its pain. The suffering is what it is and it remains that even after it has finished. So it's not as if these blessings at the end can be Job's kind of compensation. You know, everything's even now. We've, We've got it all over with. We're all fair and square. That can't be what's going on here. 
Maybe what this shows us is the topsy-turviness of life, the twists and turns. As much as some people experience horrendous suffering, other people win the lottery. Or other people seem to um, live charmed lives. Whatever they do, and everyone's looking on and thinking, that's going to end in disaster. And you know what? It doesn't. And they end up with um, amazing things happening to them all the time. And you think, that's not fair. And then, you know, the person down the road is, is suffering horrendously and illness after illness and losing people they love. And there doesn't seem to be any obvious reason for any of these things. So it may be that this is just sort of illustrating that as a sort of epilogue of this is what life is like, sometimes up, sometimes down. And that, that's kind of true and helpful and, and wise to, to, to remember that. But the New Testament suggests there is something more. So James chapter 5, verse 12, if you want to flick to it, just mentions Job as the, the, um, right at the end of the book. Chapter, James chapter 5, verse 12. You have heard of the perseverance of Job. In fact, it's verse 11, isn't it? You've, you've heard of Job's perseverance and you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. All good things come from God. And this is a picture of the life with God that God promises to all who trust in him. You wait patiently. After Jesus's death came his resurrection. And after the believers suffering and even death, resurrection will come. It will begin with restored relationship. That's what happens with Job here. He has humbled himself. He's been vindicated. His prayers have been accepted. Now my eyes have seen you, he says. Job 42, verse 5. The thing he longed for all along has happened. And only after he has seen God is he blessed with all these things. And we, we may need to wait even through death or through the return of Jesus. But the Bible ends with that vision of the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, a place with no more suffering and death, no more tears, a place with the crucified and risen Jesus at the center. That is the Christian's certain hope, even in the darkest days of suffering. And the question is, will we trust God even when we don't understand what's going on? The book of Job then has no doubt puzzled us and troubled us. Christopher Ashe sums it up like this. We're left with a mystery at the heart of the universe. A blameless believer who walks in fellowship with his creator may suffer terrible and undeserved pain, may go through deep darkness and then at the end be vindicated, battling yet blessed. That is the story of Job. It's the story of Jesus. And therefore, as we're called today to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, it's our story as well. And so let's ponder that as we pray now. Father, thank you for this book, these, this extraordinary uh, book that challenges us on so many levels. We humble ourselves before you. We recognize that you are God and we are not. We praise you for Jesus who has suffered with us and for us. 
And so as we battle on, we praise you for how you blessed us in Christ and for that future resurrection hope that we have when we trust in him. Help us to to meditate on that as we go forwards from here. Amen.